So about a week ago, I was spending an afternoon on a lake in southeastern Oklahoma on a boat, uh, at one point being towed behind the boat on a kneeboard, which was a new experience for me. I realized at some point in the afternoon I had no idea what time it was, none. And not only that, I didn't care, which was really wonderful. And I realized that for a little window, I was completely outside my life as I knew it, pretty much. I mean, some people, family were there, so that piece was there. But I wasn't doing anything that it is my normal habit to do. I don't go being towed behind boats very often. (laughs) I recommend it, however. I recommend it. And probably we could have kind of an interesting discussion about what different people are doing this summer that some of you may, or let's say over the last six months, not everybody does it in the summer, but traveling to places that you don't normally travel to, seeing someplace for the first time, sometimes being under conditions that you don't normally be in, um, doing different activities, backpacking, camping, all of those kinds of things that are not what we do every day. And of course, sometimes the travel takes us to family. That was the other side of, of this particular time, family or friends that we haven't seen for a while. And so there you are in the middle of your family reunion. And of course, family reunions are pretty interesting. There's no better place to see where it is that you're not cooked yet. Because those are the places, especially if you have parents who are still alive, or sibs that you're seeing again, um, or children that have grown up, in my case, and have left, but now there we are together again. And it's amazing how the old patterns come back. You probably all noticed that. You know, there you are. And you're doing it one more time. Sisters and brothers seem to be a particularly ripe place for that kind of thing. And, and we begin to see how we have these... It's a great place to see where we have these habitual places of response or reaction. Um, and so, you know, you can think about that, what it's like every time you go back to see your family. And it, it's interesting, it doesn't seem to change a whole lot some, maybe, if you do a fair amount of personal work, but, um, you know, there you are, you've spent your hours on the cushion, and you've spent your dollars at the therapist's office, and you've done this, and you've done that, and you've worked and worked and worked and worked, and Aunt Bess does it one more time, you know, whatever it is that Aunt Bess does, and all the upset and the anger or the hurt comes up again. So... This is an important place to see. Families are a really good place to see it because it's the place that the Buddha talked about uh, when he talked about the chain of dependent origination where we get caught in cycles of suffering and we often go around and around and around and around. And we very often do these things with the people that we've grown up with or that we've been with for a very long time. And And family, particularly family of origin, are especially good at it because the roots go so very deep. You know, some of these people you've been with maybe since you were born or 
at, at the very least, maybe since you were three or four or five or six. Um, and, and so they just, without even being conscious about it, it's that place where they know, you know, where to stick the finger. And so the Buddha says, you know, we, we often get caught in these cycles that start with some place where we're not seeing things so clearly, where we have a story about how my sister is, or how Aunt Bess is, or how your father is, and then that we tend to speak or act in ways that are based on that story, and then events happen and we perceive them in a particular way, and then maybe we say something or do something again that keeps the cycle going around. So we all know this place very well. We know it in our family situations, and we also know it in our habitual environments. So the habit is a very, very good place to begin to look at what this chain is like. And um, so the habitual place of your workplace or the place of your everyday life or the people and family that you live with. And um, these, there are certain actions and reactions that happen over and over and over again. And so when we're caught in this kind of pattern, then whether it's at the family reunion or whether it's walking into the office or whether it's going home tonight and there's your best beloved who's done something one more time, as sometimes happens, it did in my family recently. Um, and, and immediately the reaction is there. And if we're, if we're not careful, then we, we perpetuate a cycle. So, there's a lot of conditioning then for difficult mind states to keep coming around because we've, we've done these things, the hurt has happened, it's happened again, and then it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. And we live our lives this way. We're caught in various cycles of habit. That's the habit of what you do for work, or what you do for recreation, or what you do for sex, or what you do for relationship. And often these cycles, these habitual patterns, create suffering. So when I was on this trip, I remembered a teaching that I got many years ago from Jack Kornfield, who got it from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And Trungpa said, if you can't meditate, travel. So, you know, you can all go home now and go pack your suitcase, forget about meditating. And I expanded it a little bit last week as I pondered because I think you could probably as easily say, if you can't meditate, play. Or you might try singing or art or some of those things. Um, but the kind of thing that, that allows us to step out of this habitual place and that's hugely important as a place of practice, I think. So some of the people who have been sitting with me on Tuesday know that I've been talking a lot about um, a reading that I came across in Ajahn Sumedho's book called The, um, the Sound of Silence. It's the book that the Committed Students Group is going to be 
working with next week, next year, and not next week. And um, and he says something in here that is is quite interesting. If I can find it. So he says, and when he thinks about this analogy of the turning wheel, he says, if you imagine a wheel of a car, the tire is where there is movement. In the center of the tire, there is no, at least no perceptive, perceivable movement. There we go. And so he says, in the center, um, there is stillness. When we are not coming from stillness, then we are on the wheel. When we are attached to something or want to get rid of something, when we are again pulled out from the center onto the wheel, the endless circle of becoming and suffering happens again. So it's this place where we're invited to step out of the wheel, and Ajahn Sumedho invites us to step into the center, which I think is a very interesting thing to begin to consider. He doesn't say just go someplace else. It just says, step into the center where there's stillness, and then you can begin to see what's happening with this wheel that's going around, which is, I think, really excellent advice for summer practice as you're, um, as you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're going off to play or whether you're going off to travel. or um, where So you go into this new situation where the old stories aren't so strong. One of the things I love to think about when I'm in airports, where I am entirely too often, is I think about the fact that nobody knows who I am there. Nobody knows I'm a meditation teacher. Nobody knows I'm even a Buddhist. Nobody's expecting me to be nice, or grumpy, or any of the things that people think about me. They have no idea. I could start... I could, you know, look around the room, I could decide to be Heidi and do Heidi, and nobody would be the slightest surprised. They'd just think that's who this woman was. And it's kind of fun to begin to think that, that you can step out of your personality a little bit and try something else on for size. You know, you can experiment with it next time you're in an airport. Unfortunately, our conditioning is pretty deep. It doesn't, you can't do it for too very long. But the vacation place, the play place, really... Um, encourages that because when we go into the new situation sometimes there you are you know you're in conditions that you wouldn't normally be in you're carrying a 40 pound pack on your back or you're in the depths of India and it's not you know there's smells and sounds that you've never heard before or smelled before Um, or just something that's different that just completely completely takes you out of the ordinary place. Some years ago, I had the great good fortune to practice for a while with Hamid Ali, who teaches something called the Diamond Approach. It's based some on Sufi practice. And we would go to retreats, and he would have us do a practice of inquiry in the morning and again in the evening. And then in the afternoon, he would send us off to play. And people went river rafting and hiking and ballooning and did all kinds of things that they didn't normally do. And I was very sniffy. I was a diehard Vipassana practitioner. And I thought, what kind of retreat is this? I mean, really, play, excuse me. And 
I did it for a number of years, and I began to realize, retreat after retreat, as I would come home with some deeper sense of insight or some awareness that I had not had before, that there was something about this play business that was really interesting, that was really supportive of letting go of attachments to being a particular identification. So that's really the crux of it. Because that place where we get identified with who we are, the Buddha tells us, is the heart of where we create our own suffering. One simple way, you know, this, this you hear, oh, the Buddha teaches, the, you know, the teaching about no self, and that that sounds kind of scary sometimes. It's like maybe all of a sudden you'll be sitting on the meditation cushion one day and you'll go poof and then you won't be there anymore, which is not exactly at all what the Buddha meant. Um, And a simpler way to say it is that selfing causes problems. Selfing causes problems. That place where we get attached to I and to me and to mine, where we become the center of the universe and that's what's most important and where you really cling to that, to that sense of, of who we are. And we think that it's central and we think that it's important and we think that it's permanent and we think that it's solid and we expect it to be the same for all the foreseeable future. And of course, when we step out, when we do something that's not the habitual thing that we do, Sometimes that opens up that place where we're not so attached. One meditation teacher I know, um, I don't know if she still does this, but when I was studying with her, she did. Every year, she would sign on to take a beginner's class in something she knew nothing about in order to, to go into that place where she didn't have an identity. She had no idea could she do weaving or singing or dance or whatever it was and to just put herself in that place and start all over again from scratch. And she found that that was a hugely important part of her practice because it invited her to let go of this habitual notion of someone who was you know, reasonably successful at what she did and had an identity and and but in, and so instead of being the successful A student, she got to be nobody one more time, and began to discover that it was really fun. It was great to be nobody. Of course, the problem was once you take the beginner's class and then you get a little bit good at what it is you're doing, then then you then you start to build up the identity, right? So then you have to find something else that you don't do. Um, but you could try it. Last night, the beginner's class met, and I taught them, and I was leaving to do, go off to do what I've been doing in that realm recently, which was an East Coast swing class. And it's a drop-in class, and I invited them to join me, but nobody did. I sort of thought maybe we might take the meditation into some new realm. Um, so you can pick your class, you know, whatever it is, and try something that is new to you, that you aren't such an expert at. And in those moments, 
we let go. So we also know this. You know, Trungpa said, if you can't meditate, then travel. So he gave a little edge to meditating. So when we meditate, that's what we do. You come here, you put your butt on the cushion, you close your eyes, and you do your best to step out of that habitual world. Now, the habitual world comes to visit, right? We all know that over and over again. It arises, and there you are, making the list, solving the problem, having the conversation, either having it again because you didn't like the way it went in the first place, or having it ahead of time so that you can have it right tomorrow, whatever it is that you're doing. And then you wake up and you think, oh, no, I'm on the cushion. Come back, be here, breathe, feel the body. Just be here, let go, let go, let go. And so you do your best to let go of it and to step back into the center, into that place. So the place of meditation that really supports this is that place where we begin to develop some stillness and some ability to be attentive to what's happening so that when we look out at the, the stuff that's circling around, we can see it more clearly. So to the extent that you're able to rest in that stillness in the center, it actually then begins to clarify your vision and your perception for what is happening in your everyday life. And then, again, something new has a chance to arise. And many of us have had that experience. You go, just sit. I was telling the group on Tuesday, my, when my girls were adolescents, they would sometimes look at me with utter disgust when we would be in the middle of something. And they would say, Mom, go sit. You know, just go sit. Because they knew if I would go sit for a while, sometimes something new could come in. I wouldn't be quite so caught in whatever pattern it was. Of course, the truth was, they could have gone to sit too. That might have helped. <laughs> and... Um, and sometimes they did get sent off for a little quiet, which, of course, also helps. So we do these practices in order to perceive more clearly what is so, and, and hopefully to perceive that when we aren't so identified with that habitual sense of who it is that we are, with that habitual sense of how I live my life, with that habitual sense of what it is that I do or how it is that I respond. When we are still or when we play or when we travel, then there is more space and something new can emerge or some deeper perception of who it is that we are. T.S. Eliot says, At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness, not fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that would be to place it in time.
I think I'll stop there and see if you have questions or comments and we can continue the talk together. Observations from your own experience of play or shift or change this summer or practice. I do sometimes as a practice just doing something that's uncharacteristic mm-hmm. because I think you know it's so easy to feel like I'm this sort of person who does this sort of thing exactly. and I can be counted on to you know respond in this way to act in this way and to just choose to do something uncharacteristic can be really refreshing I knew somebody once who occasionally wore mismatched clothing. She'd wear two different shoes or two different socks or something. Also, just to... Shake it up. Shake it up a little bit. Yeah. Anybody playing or traveling? No. (laughs) Uh, I have a uh, kids main mentor. Uh-huh. Four cars. We just bike the whole length of Big Sur. Thursday, last Thursday, Friday. Yeah. That was definitely took us out of the normal. Uh huh. Uh huh. Especially the hill climbs. Yeah. Yeah, I thought a little bit about exercise and all of that because you know you just the zone, right? Because the catch with exercise is you can get identified with, or competitive around it, which I think is the place where then all of a sudden there you are again, you're caught in your selfing. But there can be moments of biking or hiking or swimming or whatever. Or it's it's quite pretty quite interesting. Driving up. I, I yeah. came back with 700 photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think an interesting area to explore is often how we shy away from doing things where we feel incompetent. Uh I I lately had to experience that where I had had to start working out at a gym instead of swimming. And it was amazing to find how much resistance I had to doing something where I felt incompetent. Uh And it turned out to be just, you know, kind of a, a scarecrow, that there was nothing behind it. But it was really interesting watching that amount of mm-hmm. resistance in myself, just a feeling out of my zone. Yep. Yeah. Try taking East Coast swing when you're the <laughs> oldest person in the room by maybe 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Except for my husband. Yeah. Yeah. And I won't ever catch up. Do things I won't. You will never pick me up and turn me upside down. (laughs) But it's a very interesting place because those are so much the places where we begin to see how we are attached to being this particular person. And the Buddha is telling us, and it's observable, and you'll watch it yourself, is that things can happen. I remember the afternoon that my mother-in-law died and she literally disintegrated in terms of her, her ability to function as a person in the space of an afternoon 
Where's Adal? She went from being able to have a coherent conversation to not to word salad to nothing, and it was like, wait a minute, what, what, what? You know, is there a person in there or isn't there? And you know, just a few hours after that, she was gone, and it was an amazing thing to realize that it's going to happen here too. You know, what is or people who have dementia or Alzheimer's, and you begin to see that this thing we call me that has certain competencies and certain abilities is a very temporary phenomenon. Just happening, and the slightest thing could change it. Andrea, you had a question. Or it was just a comment about, I think for me sometimes, the idea of you know getting out of the pattern of my life, and often it's in the, in the mode of getting away and... And there's this idea that I need to have a week or a month. And then I'll go down, to, like recently, a couple months ago, I went down to Esalen just for an overnight. And that whole thing, like time disappeared. I was sinking into it. And it, it, it could have been a week or a month or a year or a day. It just, it didn't have that sense of limitation yeah. around it. But yeah. I think I get caught that if I can't have a whole week mm-hmm. or then I just keep marching along until I can have a whole week and just discovering that a day or two or take or even moment, an afternoon take the morning and turn your phone yeah. off yeah. Like there's not just way. not answering it that doesn't do it but it's like turning it off is an amazing it's, it shifts the whole mm-hmm. thing and again you're not caught in your habitual you know check the email answer the phone I suspect if we're going to turn our phone off, we have to turn our computers off, um, and your iPhone, and all of that. Yeah. Martin? Uh, I, I was fond of a sign that was on the wall in my daughter's school a few years ago that said something to the effect that anything worth doing is worth doing really poorly at first. Um, <laughs> And That's it's great. really uh-huh. so true, and, uh-huh. and it's so difficult yeah. as a young person, particularly. But I don't know that it gets too much yeah. easier. Yeah. Um, to uh, it's I just watched my son do this again and again and again. He would start stuff, and, and because he wasn't perfect when he started uh-huh. it, he couldn't do it. He, uh-huh. he just had to let it drop. So it's that strong self thing. It's that you know yeah. clinging so tightly to our identity that we can't allow ourselves to be a beginner. Um, very interesting place to be. Anyway, it was, I thought it was a great lesson. Mm-hmm. And we do it on the cushion, too. I hear that so often. People come and they say, oh, my mind. You know, I just can't do this. You know, I can't achieve perfect diamond-like radiant stillness. <laughs> um, I mean, who can? But there's that sense that somehow we have to get somewhere and do something and achieve and and um, I remember Ajahn Amaro my good friend and beloved teacher looking at me one day and said just get it you're a C student (laughs) what? (laughs) I was so offended I am not I am not a C student and now some of you may not have had that experience, so there may be other ways that you have to push up against it, but you have to be the A student, I don't know. But it was a very interesting moment. Yeah. Please, Maya. 
in my school days, I would always hide during PE because uh-huh. <laughs> I was not a competitive person and I was a very good student and I was definitely sure I was going to be a C student in PE. So constantly um, I convinced myself that I was not good at physical things. And I had the same experience in um, art classes because I was not able to replicate the object that we were given. And so the more I was convinced that I was not good at these things, just as, was it Martin or Stephen was saying, um, the child shies away from doing those things. And then, lo and behold, as an adult, I became a dance teacher (laughs) after convincing myself that I was not good physically, and later a sculptor. And it was, um, dance was something I did sort of secretly, well, for the most part as a mm-hmm. child, and art, not at all. Mm-hmm. And it took me about a year to attend a friend's sculpture class, working my way up to this, I know I'm going to be off of this, this whole voice that's going, that's preventing you from stepping outside and trying to <coughs> And I loved it in the very first moment. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think back to how many things there were, and probably still are, that I don't do because I'm afraid I'll be a C student. Uh-huh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a very, very potent kind of thing in our lives. We have some European friends, and when their son, their middle son was... Um, in our school system in Bethesda, Maryland, suburb of the capital where it's highly competitive. He said, American kids don't play. He said, we go out on the soccer field. It's not thankful. This is in high school, mm-hmm. which I think was a really good observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Playing is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll stop there. I'll make some announcements. And you can take these considerations into your the rest of your summer. Um, we particularly want everyone to know that there will be a community meeting on Sunday, this Sunday, after the 9.30 sit. Um, and I know Martin will be there, and Dan Landry will be there at representing the teacher group. And so it's a chance to both hear some about what's going on in the community and also talk about any concerns or things that you would like to see be different and that kind of thing. So um, the sitting will happen at 9.30, that's over at 10.15, and then the meeting will happen immediately after that. So please, if you would like, come. We hope that there will be a number of people. What we're going to do with these community meetings, you might remember that there was one here on Thursday a couple of months ago, and we're going to move them around every few months from sitting group to sitting group so that different populations of people have a chance to hear what's going on and also to have a voice. So um, that's that. And then there's a lot of flyers over there on the table by where Denny is sitting, um, which I'm not going to say anything about because some of them are so far in the future. Um, But I do want to mention that there is a day of mindful awareness for young adults that's happening on 
August 1st. So if you know any young people who might be interested in in the practice of mindfulness, that's happening with Jason Murphy um, from 10.30 until 5. And then I also want to mention there's flyers further down the table from Spirit Rock for the retreat at Vajrapani up in Boulder Creek that I teach every year with um, John Travis and Gil Frunstall. And the registration is now open. It very often fills. So I hope that you will sign up and go if you're interested in a relatively local retreat. Is John Travis going to be able to make it? We don't know at this point. So August 14th to the 23rd. Yes, I should say that John just had surgery for prostate cancer. The result have basically been very good. Um, and he's had some complications that will clear but have made it much more difficult. So we don't know whether he will be teaching or not or whether he will come for his annual visit down here to Vipassana Santa Cruz. So, and then also to mention that the Donna baskets are there um, for your practice of generosity and we support both this community, the, the Sangha basket, uh, as it's called, with um, generosity and also the teachings. And so if that's interesting to you, all, all of that is on the sideboard. We hope it is interesting to you. All right, so let's end with just a little bit of loving kindness practice.